From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we will welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, CJ Gustafson. CJ, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Oh, yeah, we're really excited to have you. So CJ, a little bit about him. He runs the website Mostly Metrics. He has a newsletter. He's worked primarily in the SaaS industry. He's done a little bit in M&A, a little bit of investor relations right. in FPNA. And from my understanding, he's you're getting ready to uh, do his first uh, CFO gig. So congratulations on that. Thanks, Paul. I'm excited to uh, take it to the next level. No, that would be great. It sounds like that would be a really good opportunity. So maybe we could just start with, can you take us a little bit through your background and how you ended up, you know, working in FP&A and just a little bit of how you got to where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a Boston area guy. I, uh, I went to Boston College. I majored in finance uh, as well as American history, something that you don't really see much from uh, numbers people like myself. And so I worked for a big four accounting firm out of college and I was in their consulting branch. And so we worked on due diligence as assignments for large private equity firms. And you know how that is. It's kind of uh, four days away. You, you take a plane to wherever you're going and you do your reports. And um, basically, we looked at you know tech or healthcare firms for large buyouts. And we dig into the financials and headcount and report back what we found. And that gave me a lot of reps at analyzing different business models, which I think we'll come back to later when we talk about FP&A and just learning how companies monetize their products and how good CEOs organize their resources for success. And so I did that for about two years. And um, then I got a chance to go over to the private equity side. And so I worked for a large tech buyout shop in their valuation and analysis department. And so this was another thing that was like foundational to moving to FP&A. So I was responsible for valuing eight to nine tech firms each quarter. And I also helped with their fundraising efforts as they raised new capital. And so that was where I really learned uh, financial modeling to kind of marry with what I learned in consulting. And so um, at most PE shops, it's kind of two years and you either go get your MBA or you're out. And I was kind of at a crossroads there. And so I had built up a lot of momentum. I didn't really want to pause and go back to school at that point. And so I went over to the software side to do strategy work at a big backup and recovery software vendor. And so um, kind of went to the other side of the table from from the funder to the funded. And so I've, I've had numerous roles on this side. And so from strategy to business development, uh, to chief of staff, and then eventually to FP&A. And so the CEO and the CFO saw that I had this knack for building business plans and figuring out how much different initiatives would cost versus return. And I think like a light bulb went off and they said, hey, can you actually build out our first FP&A function? Um, you know, I was kind of a little bit like, well, what's FP&A? What do I do here? And uh, <laughs> I was actually surprised, Paul, because the company had almost 3,000 people. And FP&A wow. at this point, yeah, it had been, it wasn't called FP&A really. It was like geographic at that level within the accounting department. So it wasn't really defined or centralized at that point. 
And so I did that for a couple of years and then moved over to a startup in the cybersecurity space. And so I came in as an FP&A director. I helped uh, them raise four rounds of funding. And then I moved over to work on investor relations as, as we got bigger and had more specific things to do and, and initiatives with our investors. And so hyper growth, amazing experience. And I recently accepted a CFO role at a Series B startup, which uh, I'll be embarking on in about a week. Well, I can say congratulations on the CFO. And it sounds like you've had you know quite the journey in a number of different finance roles. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Brian Lapidus, but he runs the Association for Finance Professionals. And he shared how one of their uh, members shared a presentation. He calls it the finance passport. As okay. I listened to okay. you, that's what I thought about. He talks about how, you know, if you want to get to that CFO, you have to punch different things on your passport. I love that. Like just knowing FP&A isn't enough. Like in your, you know, you've talked about the investor relations, the M&A, the strategy, you know, the chief of staff role, right? Having a diverse background so you understand how all that plays together. Yeah, totally. And I, I kind of look at it too as, you know, stacking your talents. So maybe I'm like, uh, you know, uh, a, a B plus in treasury and, you know, maybe I'm an A minus in FP&A, but like I'm going to help be a general manager to hire the right people and know each kind of division well enough to to help the company scale. And um, that's what I'm most excited about, I think, with moving to the CFO role. It's, it's getting to work with smart people who are domain experts and using what I kind of picked up along the way, like you said, at those train stops or passport stops to help them succeed. No, that's great. Yeah. Now you're, you're really focused on helping others succeed and shaping the company. So speaking of that, and then I'll come back to a different question I had here in a minute, but talking to the CFO part, what keeps you up at night, you know, thinking you're now going to be in charge of all of finance? Is there <laughs> you know, kind of certain area that really has got you a little nervous as you get ready for that role or anything? Yeah. It's funny you ask. So I've been on vacation this week and my wife was looking over my shoulder and she's like, what is the cash conversion cycle? And so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm pretty boring, but I'm not a CPA by trade. Like I know my way around the balance sheet. I'm comfortable with the restatement modeling, but I'm not as experienced with day-to-day accounting operations like sure. AR and AP. So I would say that's what I need to you know, really brush up on. And like day one, what I know I'm going to have to do is hire a rock star controller to help run the operational side of the accounting department. And that'll be really my partner in crime as we scale the business and make sure that we have a strong accounting function in-house. Yeah, no, and, and that's great that you recognize that and you know what you need to go out and get. That's also an area that, you know, I've had some experience in, but I'm not a CPA by trade. I didn't, you know, do an accounting degree. So I can relate to that of, wanting to have that person that that's where they're really strong in. So they compliment you. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, totally. So I know you run the website called uh, Mostly Metrics. You have a newsletter. I think if I'm right, you have about 5,000 subscribers. Can maybe talk a little bit about you know how that came about and what is it all about? Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So Mostly Metrics, it's uh, like the title says, it's mostly financial metrics and some other business stuff. And, you know, it's been a, my passion project for about two years now. And I started it for three reasons, really. The first was, you know, I was in this seat at a hyper growth company running FP&A. And I didn't want to forget everything that was coming my way. It was kind of like I was trying to drink through a fire hose. And I wanted to document things I was learning and things that I was curious about. And I look at working at tech firms in particular, and this can apply to a lot of other industries, I'm sure, is you're kind of coming up with a playbook that you can apply later. 
for if it's at that company or elsewhere. And so I wanted to document that playbook. And second, you know, I wanted to grow my network and I thought this would be the easiest excuse to talk to really smart people. And instead of asking someone for five minutes to pick their brain, which is kind of a generic thing, I could have something to say, hey, you know, I'll do a write-up on you or like I'm curious about this topic and I have this audience. And so the newsletter allows me to kind of selfishly talk to people I'm interested in learning from, whether it be VCs or startup founders. And third, I just like writing. I mean, um, it helps me crystallize what I'm learning and it's, you know, the process, it's, it's not something that I feel like is like a grind. It's something that I actually enjoy sitting down and doing on weekends. So it's a, it's a fun passion project uh, on weekends. No, that's great. And I like how you mentioned, you know, the three things that it helps you. I really like the one of getting to talk to smart people. Like that's been one of my favorite things of doing this podcast is I love the variety of people I get to talk to and learn from. Like I, sometimes I'm sitting there going, am I really talking to this Excel MVP that's known all over the world? And I'm sure you've had some moments like that where you're like, I'm talking to so-and-so, right? You know, doing an article with this guy that's famous, so to speak, in, in our yeah. realm, right? Yeah. I've had meetings with some people that like, you know, if you're like a finance dork like me, you may read their newsletter or their podcast. And I'm like, I'm talking to the Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant of like, you know, finance topics right now. And it's just cool to be able to talk to them on a one-on-one -on -one level. And you feel like you almost know them. Like when you talk to someone who has a podcast all the time and, you know, conversations with people who have seen more than you always gets me energized as to what I can do at the next step in my career and learnings and footfalls that they've made along the way that I can apply. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I, and I totally agree with you when you mentioned the Michael Jordan, I remember telling one guy that I was interviewing, I go, I have to tell you, I'm a fanboy. Like, and, you know, he's kind of like, he goes, no, no, you're an equal. You don't need to think of me as a fanboy, <laughs> you know? And so it's just kind of funny because I was like talking to this guy that's written four books and he's an Excel MVP and, you know, I love his content. I said that too. And, I said, I don't know if there's such thing as like a newsletter fanboy, but I'm definitely one of them. <laughs> that's great. And that's great that you've done that also just to, to help you learn. And, you know, right. it sounds like you've done well. I mean, you got nearly 5,000 followers. So obviously your audience likes what you're what you're sharing. I know I went out and looked at the site and there looked like there's some great content out there. I remember reading one of the articles. I'm trying to remember what it was, what it was titled, but I remember kind of, you know, browsing through it and it looked like a lot of great stuff. And I remind myself I have to go back and look a little bit more. Yeah. So. And it's all really just stuff that I was Googling five years ago when I was like in a manager or analyst role. And I would Google it 10 times to learn it. And I was like, I should just write about this at this point. Or, you know, I have younger siblings and sometimes I'll talk to their friends about like what they're working on day to day. A lot of them are in finance or sales and they'll ask me questions over a coffee or a beer. And it's like, why doesn't someone just write about it from that point of view in plain English? And I think that's what's resonated with the audience so far. And, you know, it doesn't come across to me when I write it as like I'm forcing it. It's just like I'm having a convo with a friend about a topic that, you know, I, I do at work every day. No, that's great. And I can relate, you know, different little bit of medium, but similar type thing, writing on LinkedIn every day, right? Trying to share that totally. knowledge. And yeah. it's really crystallized my learning because a lot of times I'm researching to try to figure out kind of what's going on, what the research is saying out there in FP&A and finding ways to summarize articles and, you know, things that will help people. And it's like, I'm confident if I went into an FP&A role tomorrow, I would be better than I was a year ago because of those learnings, because of that crystallization. So it really does. I mean, I've, I can relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Sure. And, and, and self-directed learning is fun. It's not like you're just following, you know, a course in school that someone's making you do this econ assignment or something. You're digging into stuff that, you know, 
actually piques your interest. Well, and that's exactly it. You have enough passion about it to actually want to learn and, you know, write about it versus, you mean, I got to, I got to write an English paper about Shakespeare (laughs) that's 10 pages long or or whatever it might be. I I probably shouldn't pick Shakespeare. I'm sure I'll hear from somebody, but (laughs) you get the idea. Well, great. Now that's exciting. And we'll, you know, definitely would encourage people to go check that out. So, you know, another question here is I know you've worked a lot in tech, you know, work for SaaS companies. So obviously SaaS companies are a little, you know, a little different. You know, subscription is always important. We always hear about SaaS metrics is the big thing you hear about. Oh, yeah. You know, can you talk to our audience a little bit about some of maybe your favorite SaaS metrics that you like to track, how you kind of think about it and what you like to look at for a subscription business? You know, that's a hard one as a, as a metrics fan. I think I can get it down to three for you, though. I would say CAC payback period, net retention and, and gross margin. Those would be my my top three. And I, I'll, I'll give you kind of a blurb on on why. So... CAC payback, um, some of you may know it's a derivative of customer acquisition costs. So it tells you how long it takes you to break even on the cost it took to get that new customer. So it's quoted in months and the less number of months it takes you to get your money back, the better. And so this smart friend of mine, he said, you know, low CAC payback period, that means our customers fund our growth. High CAC payback period means VCs fund our growth. And the last part of that sentence isn't as sustainable. the next one that I really like is net retention. And this is a huge one in, in software in particular. So I think it's just so powerful when you can embed growth right into your business model. So a net retention of 130%, that essentially tells you that you could go on vacation for a year and still grow at 30% year on year. And so I, I say that kind of half in jest because you do need to take care of your existing customers and make them successful. But still, when you can keep customers around and expand them through either more licenses more usage, or more products, that's going to free up so many resources for you to invest in other parts of the business for growth. And the third one that I mentioned, gross margin. So that's really a litmus test as to how scalable the business is in the long run. There are some businesses out there where revenue growth can be almost a vanity metric because they have so much tied up in cost of goods sold. And you know it'll tell you how much you have left over uh, to pay for your ongoing customer maintenance costs. And so like an example, a publicly traded company that I think has tremendous gross margin is Atlassian. So some periods they'll have gross margin of, of 85%. And that allows them to do super innovative stuff on the product side with all that money left over. Companies that gross margin can make a huge difference. You know, I work companies in the cybersecurity industry, some of them, you know, can have some really high because there's not a lot of cogs, which allows you to fund things you can't otherwise. You know, if you're looking at a a 40% gross margin versus an 80, it's a totally different <laughs> profile, right? It changes yeah. what you can do. That's a totally different ball game. You know, and I worked for a business where we had SaaS components, but we also had a marketing business mixed in with SaaS. So we had many cases where, you know, we had gross margins in the 30% and others where they were 90%. And so it was a very interesting mix of how you manage it. Because, you know, you had some real cost of goods sold on the marketing side, especially when you were sending out millions of pieces of mail, postage. So postage, that's a throwback. Yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting business. It is. Most people don't think of mail anymore, but still do lots of advertising that way. Yeah. So CAC also, yeah, I, I really loved that line. I hadn't heard it explained that way of, you know, low CAC, your customers fund it. High CAC, the VC funds it, which isn't sustainable. Yeah. And I think a lot of VCs like it too, because they can go into a business and say, you you may need money today, but your unit economics, like I can see how this will pay for itself in the future. 
I, I just think it's one of the best ways to get your hands dirty with the go-to-market engine in particular. I mean, there are a bunch of other different metrics you could look at, like the burn multiple, if you wanted to take a look at the entire business, not just the go-to-market engine, which is basically like how much cash are you burning for every point of growth. But like I said, you know, CAC for a, a, an enterprise software company or even an SMB company, there are different, you know, guardrails that you want to stay in between to say that you're efficiently staffing your sales and marketing teams. Yeah, no, and those are all great metrics. And there's a lot of others, you know, we hear about like, you know, like you said, the net retention where, hey, if you can be greater than 100%, if you're expanding your existing customers, you know, versus losing and churning customers, it changes the profile. It's always cheaper to keep a customer than to go get a new customer. And that's 100%. something I emphasize. We were dealing with a lot of churn in one of the companies I was at. And I'm like, okay, we got to find a way to invest in reducing the churn because it's a lot cheaper to keep a customer than it is to get a new customer, especially when the competition comes in. Because it, when, you know, they used to be the only player in the space and then a lot of people that came in. So not only was there price compression, but there was some churn going on. And, Ouch. You know, get that gets expensive in a hurry. <laughs> it does. So... All righty. Well, no, that that's really helpful. So, you know, as we look at this current economic environment, kind of speaking about SaaS, right? There's all this fear of a recession looming. We've all seen the headlines of inflation. We've all seen, you know, kind of the headline of the party is over term, right? You know, the and we've seen it a little bit in the market of it's all about growth at any cost, right? Just growth. Mm -hmm. We don't care what it costs. And now it's like, wait, no, no, we want profitable growth. You know, the yeah. VCs are kind of scaling back a little bit, valuations are coming down. You know, what advice would you offer to companies, you know, especially VC backed in this, in this environment as we've seen a tightening of capital and a little bit of a concern of you know, a recession loop? Yeah, I think it's just to watch your cash burn. Um, Mark Laurie, he was the founder of Jet.com. He once said, <laughs> I think it's a funny quote, it's just the reason most companies fail is that they run out of money. And he does have he does have a point there. I mean, like technically you have a viable business until you don't have any money left. But, you know, in all seriousness, I think the, you know, it was like the formula for a premium valuation, Paul, used to be like four parts growth, zero parts profit. And it's like they changed the recipe for the oatmeal cookies overnight. Now it's, you know, two parts growth, two parts profit. And, you know, that's okay. But like, you just got to have a different assessment of how you're running the business. And, you know, with cash burn, a company that's running a really expensive operation, you have a lot less wiggle room to mess up. So I'd say like as a rule of thumb, you want to have at least 18 months worth of cash runway on your hands post your most recent fundraise. And so I say that because it'll give you 12 months to go out and make magic before you come back to the VCs with your coffers and six months of buffer before, uh, you know, just in case there is an environment like this and, or you need to get your house in order with your unit economics. And so, you know, the other thing I'd reflect on is like, don't go from a low cost to a high cost model overnight. I think a lot of software companies in the last two years were super exuberant and excited to go out and hire massive sales forces right after raising. And it's, mm -hmm. I look at that like that's, that's totally fine. You can do that, but like maybe run a couple experiments first to ramp reps, make sure you can make them successful, that they have enough pipeline to feast on and that, you know, marketing can deliver to those reps. You don't want to raise like show up to raise again and look inefficient because those investments you made were fast and furious and you just haven't had time to show that payoff yet. A lot of great advice in there. I think first, like you mentioned, you know, just having the buffer, that burn and really watching that burn rate. But I really also liked your point about you know, experiment some. Don't just think you've nailed it and scale it without making sure you scaled the right model. 
Yeah. Do you really need field sales? Could it be done inside? Can it be more product led? Right. right. Versus just, I got cash. So let's just get the sales and get revenue at no matter what the unit economics are. Right. Which just is a recipe for disaster if you're not careful. It is. It is. And it can get expensive really fast. I mean, at tech firms just being on the FPNA side and I'm sure you've seen this too from your experience, like 75 to 80% sometimes of the cost walks on two legs. And if you're hiring a field sales force and you've traditionally either been 100% channel or you've been product-led growth, you're just adding bodies to the mix and they're not going to pay for themselves overnight. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, SMB, maybe it's a three-month ramp. Uh, Mid-market, maybe it's a six-month ramp. Enterprise, it could be nine to 12 months before they're actually hitting a full quota. Yeah, no, we, uh, I had some businesses where we did the math and before they were, you know, EBITDA accretive. So not hitting full quota, but actually paying for themselves and yeah. generating revenue. I think we figured in one of our businesses, it was 15 months, right? Wow. That's a long, okay. yeah. it's, it's a long lead time, but you know, we had big deals and it was right. a lot of enterprise type. And so that was an interesting one to see, you know, in another place we saw a case where we had a general manager who just thought he could solve everything by throwing more bodies at it. <laughs> and that, eventually yeah. that ended up, he ended up leaving the company and they restructured the entire organization. And we were doing as much in sales with the 70 or 60% of the sales force because they had really focused on training, the quality and process optimization and all those things instead of just thinking, we'll just throw bodies at it. There'll be pipeline out there. Mm. Yeah, maybe there will be, but maybe there'll be a lot of underperformers because you're not thinking through the process. So. A lot of great information there. And I'm sure we could keep talking about that one and the different things we've seen in that, in that yeah. realm. Cause it's hard to get right. It is really hard to get right. And you know, the, that's why the experimentation is key. You got to sometimes try 10 things to see which are the top three that have the best return. Yeah. It's always, always better to make a small mistake and then recalibrate than make a big, huge mistake and try to recover. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think I've also seen that on the MA side too when it comes to tech. I think, um, you know, I was trying to count the other day. I think I've been a part of somewhere around 10 transactions over the last, you know, 10 years. And the majority of them have been tech and team, the kind of string of pearls strategy. Like, let's go out and get, you know, first of all, great technology, second, high-performing people. And then it's really been third revenue as, as another consideration. Sometimes it's almost better if they don't have revenue because it's easier to deal with from an accounting perspective and a legal entity and tax perspective. Like you said, though, I mean, you don't want to go out and make a massive mistake if you only have so many shots you can take with the cash you have when it comes to M&A. Yeah. And that's where I like the idea. If you've ever read uh, Freakonomics, I have a book called Think Like a Freak. You know, okay. And they talk about the importance of failing fast trying different things, failing and adjusting, you know, and I think there's a lot of value in that, in that whole idea of, you know, being able to adjust quickly, being agile and willing to take risk, you know, within certainty, that's where finance, I think, you know, FP&A, we can really bring a lot of help as looking at that and helping them understand, look, you can go to this approach, but realize it's going to be really expensive. And if you do this all at once, it may be difficult to recover if it doesn't work. Right. We see the, you can see that financial and see where that cliff could come if you're not careful. And that's a good way, I think, to talk to business partners within the org too. Like, Hey, I'm not here to be the police. I'm here to help you measure it. So you can decide, you know, how you want to deploy that budget in a way that helps the rest of the org. Yeah, totally agree. I, 
you know, when we be the policemen, like sometimes there's this view of finances, the no people. <laughs> and that's, we want to be the partner, not the, not the no police, as you said. Like if you've ever seen, there's a commercial by Dodge where they talk about innovation and they're going through all these different things. And then they go and you kick finance out of the room, you know, you're in the <laughs> middle of the, like, that's how you innovate. And then they keep right. going. And it's like, you know, sometimes I think that's how people view us in finance. Like, okay, how can we just get them out of the room? One of my buddies, when, you know, they were talking about in the news, the recession that may occur and, you know, pull back and spend. He and he's in sales, and he said, you know, when I when I call up places to try to land an account, they say they have to talk to their CFO now. And he he said that it's no longer the CFO; it's the CF now. <laughs> yeah, there's some truth to that. Sometimes, especially right now, they're definitely uh, tighter on those purse strings. Exactly. We will be right back. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. And now let's get back to our episode. Well, I know you've talked a little bit, you've had some experience in M&A. You just mentioned, you know, 10 different deals. So can you talk a little bit maybe about the experience with M&A and how, you know, you have worked with FP&A, how that yeah. relationship works kind of between FP&A when M&A activities are going on? That's a good one. And I think it's really the before and the after. So the before is kind of being the scout force to come up with a business case and the go, no go. You know, when you're at a company that's, under a certain amount of people, you may not have a formalized biz dev function or a strategy function that they can throw at the deal to, to analyze it. So a lot of times I've been on the end of like testing, does one plus one really equal three here? Or are we fooling ourselves um, in creating those projections? And then there's the after where, you know, you go through with it, how are we going to integrate this now? And um, you want to make sure you can close the books you want to make sure that you can pay the people on day one. That's a huge thing. And you want to make sure that you have a forecast on headcount and cost. And then, you know, down the road, you want to make sure that you come back and measure it. And FP&A, a lot of times, is the, you know, the sanity check as to did we make the right decision here? What's been the ROI? So I'd say it's the before and the after. No, that's great. And I've been involved in a few, few M&A deals, and I did the modeling for some and also helped be the coordination for you know, hey, what's the plan? Like, how do we take what you've done for this M&A deal and operationalize it into our budget? 
And yeah. so, and that's really important because you start getting into it. It's like, well, did you think about this? No. Well, what about <laughs> this expense? You know, as one guy that I had on the podcast mentioned, he's always, always make sure you have a little bit of buffer in there and make sure as an FP&A, you've really checked the assumptions so that you don't get handed something that's impossible to achieve, right? And we've all seen it. One plus totally. one equals six when it really equals three. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I think people get starry-eyed and I love working with optimists. I think that's one of the most fun things you can do in tech because tech is, you know, by its nature, an optimistic place of trying to create things that didn't exist before. But at the same time, when you look at transactions, you have to be pretty honest as to like, do you really think we can hit that sales target within 12 months? How much work is this going to have to take to retrofit it to fit on our platform? Questions that you just want to raise, not because you have the answer, but you just want to make sure people are, you know, stress testing it correctly. Yeah, I know. That's that's exactly it. It's not that you want to shut it down, but you also want to make sure they have a realistic view. Because yeah, you don't you don't want to you never want to discourage an optimist, but you also have to sometimes bring some realism to it to help temper <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, and it yeah. Can, it can be a balance for sure. So I know you've also mentioned you've worked a fair amount in investor relations. So yep. maybe talk about you know in your role in investor rate relations, how's that alignment between FP&A and investor relations? I know it's different in every company, but kind of how's been your experience? It's funny because you know being in FP&A, I saw accounting kind of as the input where they were closing the books and helping to get the financial statements in order, and I was kind of on the receiving end. And now when I moved over to IR, it was a similar kind of structure where FP&A was the input to what IR needed. So in order to be good at IR, you have to understand the business metrics from both internal and external perspectives. FP&A, they're going to be your right-hand group to help you understand the internal view of what's going on. And then you have to take that work and form a narrative as to what the overarching story is, not just for fi financials, but for the whole firm. And you know, FP&A will give IR a million metrics and signals to look at, and then IR has to synthesize it down to metrics that we're comfortable with releasing externally and comfortable reporting on consistently going forward. So what I think a lot of people don't realize is that once you give or say a metric, say net retention like we talked about earlier, the public or your investors are going to come back next period and say, hey, you know, you said it was this last time. How's that metric trending? And that's why talking to FP&A is so important. You want to understand the underlying business drivers as to why net retention may go up or down before choosing to disclose it publicly. And, you know, if you are in that position where it does go down, FP&A is going to be the first group that I call on the phone to fill in the gaps as to why it happened and provide that color commentary. I really like the way you explained that. I'd never thought of that way, but I love the first part of, you know, FP&A is an input to IR. Yeah. And so, you know, along those lines, what advice would you give to somebody in FP&A? How can they best support IR? What makes a good FP&A support when you're working in investor relations? What do you want to see from that department? I think it's trends in storylines. So not just a metric as a point of time, but how has this changed since you've been working in FP&A? And then why has it changed that way? Did we add more products? Is that why it's going up or down? Are we investing in our sales force, which is you know going to have a blip in CAC for the foreseeable future? So you know, metrics in a vacuum aren't as helpful as metrics with a holistic story behind them. And FP&A gets to have a lot of, I'd say, privileged conversations with people in the business mm -hmm. that inform that view. They're meeting with marketing every month. They're meeting with R&D. IR may not be having the exact same discussions, but they'll benefit from what FP&A gains in those combos. 
that makes a lot of sense. I really like you said the story because, you know, I don't know if you've uh, seen FP&A trends, but they're a website that does a lot of research around FP&A. I think they have over 600 articles and, you know, they did some research about the different roles in FP&A and one of the five key roles they list is storytelling, right? Really being able to tell that story. Right. Like we've all been there where you just get a report. Like, well, what does this mean? Okay. Like I see these metrics. Can you give me the, the detail behind it? Why did it go from 12 to eight? What's the story? Right. And so that, that's great. I mean, I know I've definitely had times in FPNA where I've given numbers and not known the story and they come back like, well, what does this mean? Well, let me go dig into it. And you, you learn over time. Figure it out before you just give the number. Yeah, and I think I've got burnt before just telling a CEO what a number was, and I knew it was an accurate number. And then he turns back to me and say, well, why did that happen? Or what was it before? And I'm caught flat-footed. And it's like, the job wasn't done yet, CJ. Like, you have to go one step further and have the color commentary around it. Yeah, I know. It's great. I really like the analysis. We had Jack Alexander who wrote, it's actually this book right here, Financial Planning and Analysis. And he said he would have, you know, analysts come into him when he was a CFO and VP and they'd put something on his desk and they go, here's the analysis you'd wanted. And he goes, I only had to do this once. I'd pick it up and I'd look at it. He goes, there isn't any analysis here. What's the takeaway? Yeah. And they'd be like, well, isn't this what you wanted? He goes, no, this is a report. I asked for <laughs> analysis. He goes, I would say that once I'd walk him through it and it never happened again. Yeah. Right? They realized he wanted the story. He just didn't want the report. Yeah, give me the sound bites. So that's great advice. And I really, I really like that. So, you know, as you look back at your career, you know, we've yep. all had a few of these. I know I've had plenty. We've all had some failures and opportunities to learn, as I like to, to refer to it. But maybe as you look at, you know, maybe it's around an analysis you did, something you tried to implement. Is there a failure, an experience you've had where something went wrong that you can share that really helped you in your career, that helped you, you know, kind of learn and grow? Yeah, I one comes to mind. So at one of the software firms I was working at, I'd done this contribution analysis by geography because we were global. And basically I did billings, less attributable costs for sales and marketing and even GNA. And so the result of it came out to show that one geo was basically subsidizing the other two. Mm-hmm. And you know, I presented it to all the sales leaders and I thought I was really slick and smart and two of the leaders were were not fans of me. And so (laughs) (laughs) what I thought was this illuminating piece of work actually rubbed some people the wrong way. And it was a wake up call because I need to work with these people day to day. And, you know, it devolved into an argument then over assumptions used and less so about the fact that two of the geos were underperforming. And you know, whenever you're in an argument about assumptions or definitions, like you've totally lost people at that point, like that's like the point of no return. And so from then on, I, I've always had it in the back of my head, like, when I finish an analysis, let me think what their perspective is going to be on it. Because you don't ever want to act like you're showing up anybody in the business. You want to be an objective voice of reason showing what the results are and helping them to improve the business, not to put anybody on the spot. That is great advice. And yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. You really want to think about how do I present this in a way that moves the business forward versus now having two people that hate me? <laughs> yeah. And at first, like I took it personally. I did. I was like, you, you, the, but the numbers are right. This is what it is. And then I had to say, go one step further. How does this make people feel? They feel ownership over that part of the business. You should be there to help them improve it, not, you know, punch them in the nose if, if part of the business, you know, isn't performing as they'd like it to. Yeah. And so, you know, as an example with that analysis, if you came and say, hey, we're seeing some underperformance here. This is what's going on. We think there's some opportunities to improve. 
We have some suggestions. Here's some things we've seen. Yeah, you know, right. And take it to that level where it's coming across as you're trying to help yeah. versus you like you mentioned feeling like they just been punched in the nose. Yeah, yeah, not a good feeling. No, and I think we've I've I've been there before, so that that that's a good one. I can I can relate for better or worse. So yeah, we have a few questions. This is one question we like to ask everybody. It's kind of a personal question that we ask is for everyone to share something unique about them, something we wouldn't find out online. Ah, okay. Uh, well, speaking of getting punched in the nose, uh, I was an amateur boxer in my younger days, got punched in the nose a lot. Uh, I still do a lot of boxing workouts, stay in shape. I also try to be a somewhat competitive 5K runner. And what's competitive? What's your time? I'm curious. I recently broke 17 minutes, so I'm in the high 16 minutes. Awesome. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I'm not winning any medals or anything, but you know, I can show up to a church 5k or charity 5k and, and do okay. So it's, it's fun for me to see improvement. So I ran cross country in high school and I think, I think the fastest I ever probably did a 5k was low 17s, maybe high 16s. You know, I've run some marathons. So I, that's why I asked the numbers. Yeah. I can, I can relate to all that stuff. I'm over running. 30 now. So it's, uh, you know, you're not going to see me you're not going to see me tearing it up on uh, any professional circuits or anything, but you got to do things I think that you're passionate about and have fun with and that keep you fit. So it's always good. And I, I had uh, my first child uh, recently. And so congratulations. For, thanks for, for Father's Day. My wife got us a jog stroller. So that's been fun to, uh, to, to figure out. And it wasn't that hard to set up either. We got one of those when my daughter was little. We actually just... Uh, recently gave it away, had been sitting in the garage collecting dust. And we're like, well, why do we still have this? You know, she's nine years old now. So it's been a while since she'd yeah. been in it. And so I can remember doing that. It's a lot of fun. And I, I understand what you mean, not tearing it up. I'm, uh, I've hit mid, you know, I'm in my upper forties now and the body doesn't hold up like it used to is all I'll say when it comes to running. <laughs> I hear you. So I, I could appreciate that. Well, that's great. And the boxing. So how long did you do amateur boxing for? I had about seven matches, did it throughout college, a couple of years after, and uh, so I've probably done it for over 15 years now, and so I'm a big fan of the sport too. I mean, if you want to burn some calories, it's it's the hardest workout you'll ever do in your life. Yeah, I could, I could imagine that would be a really hard workout. So fun. Well, great. Those are, those are some fun stories. So this is another question we ask everybody. This is a fun one. You know, uh, our sponsor is DataRails and they're big, huge fans of Excel, you know, having built an FP&A platform that lives with Excel, that works closely with Excel. We like to ask everybody, what's their favorite Excel function or formula, you know, feature nice. and why? Right up my alley. All right. Hot take here. I think index match match is way better than VLOOKUP. I would agree. I like XLOOKUP, but you also have to have Office 365 for that. So... Oh, XLOOKUP. I got to get into that one. It's funny because I've worked in Excel, I've worked in Sheets and all sorts of things. And so, you know, this isn't a formula or anything, but if I'm using Excel and helping with like a cap table, I do use GoalSeek a lot. That's what I use to test. That's got to be, you know, another favorite function of mine just for doing scenario analysis. You're the third person that's mentioned GoalSeek. That's a popular one. So really, yeah, that one's been mentioned a few times for sure. Uh, Index match has been mentioned. My favorite we had mentioned one time is someone told us Mergen Center was their favorite feature. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. And he's like, please don't edit that out. Leave that one in. Yeah. <laughs> it is helpful, though, when, when you want to have a column heading and you don't want to. Uh, it's an underrated function. 
it has its uses for sure. But it was just kind of funny because it's not the answer you expect. Right. So we had a little fun with it. All right. So we have two more questions here. I know we're just about out of time. We've really enjoyed, you know, having you on the show. But, you know, next question here. What do you see going forward as the biggest challenge and opportunity for the FP&A profession? Hmm. You know, I think they're kind of interrelated, really. Um, I think GNA as a whole is coming under more scrutiny as companies try to rein in their expenses. You know, FP&A falls in that along with HR and other, you know, uh, administrative functions in, in the org because you're either helping to build the product, sell the product, or enable those two other groups to do what they do better. And so FP&A definitely falls in that third bucket. And so I think FP&A is going to have to be more strategic as a result of budgets tightening and work more in those business cases um, and look at the business from a longer-term perspective. Earlier in our convo, we talked about M&A, like the before and after, and I think FP&A is going to do a lot more of the before, the, the business analysis as to does this fit in our company or not. You also said before, like, where's the analysis? I think a lot of FP&A groups have, you know, big arms and skinny legs. And what I mean by that is they're really good at the F and the P, but the analysis is pretty skinny sometimes. And that's because they're so focused on just producing good financial statements that are accurate and timely. And now it's kind of an opportunity with budgets tightening to really focus on that A and make it a big A, not a lowercase A. I like that. I hadn't quite had it uh, put that way. I like the analogy there, but, you know, making it a big A. So really focusing on that analysis and improving that area to help with the GNA and help make sure the business is spending the dollars wisely. Exactly. Because, you know, when there's growth and the economy's good, it covers, it can cover a multitude of sins, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Growth in the economy and growth in your business will cover up a lot of sins. But, you know, when the, you know, rising tide lifts all ships, but when the water goes down, you can kind of see who's swimming naked. Yeah, exactly. You see all the skeletons in the bodies. Yeah, yeah. Yep, no, that makes sense. So last question here. So if someone was starting their career in FP&A today, yep. what advice would you offer that person? I think this is for FP&A, and it can be applied to a lot of other departments too. It's to remember that money isn't the scarce resource starting out. Knowledge and more specifically accesses so you want to find a, a way to get into the room with the decision makers at your company. So listening to what they say and how they navigate decisions will expedite your learning career. And that's where the money comes from. FP&A puts you in a great position to get into that room. You're the one with the keys to the operating plan. You have the analysis as to how things are trending. People want to talk to you. Step one is to find a way to get into that room with the decision makers. Use FP&A to do that. Use FP&A. Step two is to do your homework and prepare beforehand. You have to do that on your own. So I always try to write down what my three to five key takeaways are before I get in the room because I know I'm going to have limited time with execs. And when they call on me to say something, I want to have my sound bites organized. So don't just do the reporting. Go one step further if you're in that room, to be able to explain the so what. And executives, you'll be surprised will remember you for that. That's really good advice. I really I really like that, you know, and especially where you mentioned executives remember that and really going above and beyond to that so what. You know, so first getting that kind of seat at the table in the room and then making sure you're prepared, making sure you know what you're doing, you've thought through things and that you can bring value. So that that's great advice. And I think we'll go ahead and end it there and just say thank you so much for being on the uh podcast today. We were really excited to have you and good luck in your uh, new role. 
I hope everything goes well as you get settled into being a CFO. Thanks, Paul. This has been awesome.